invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to read starting in verse 9, which won't be on the screen, and then we'll read our sermon text, Hebrews 5, verses 11 through 6, verse 12. The reason to read verses 9 and 10 is the author of Hebrews takes a pause after having said something, and he needs to um, give an exhortation to the church there. And so we want to see why, why he um, breaks out in this exhortation based on verses 9 and 10. This is God's holy and inspired, perfect word. Let's give our attention to it. I'll start reading chapter 5, verse 9. We'll read all the way through 6, verse 12. Being made perfect... He became, that's Christ, the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And then taking up chapter 6, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who once had been enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's ask for God's blessing on his word. Father, we thank you so much for the light and the truth that comes from Scripture. Lord, there's times where passages are more obscure and difficult to understand, so we ask for the Holy Spirit to lead and to guide us into all truth. Jesus, you promised that that is what the Spirit would do. And so, Lord, in the things that are unclear, help us to understand them as much as we can. And, Lord, the things that you set very clearly in front of us, please drive them deeply into our hearts. We ask that my words and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable to you tonight our rock and our redeemer, for it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Kicking off a new year and asking the question, this is the title of my sermon, how do I finish strong? How do I not just begin 
in the Christian faith with joy. There's a, a parable where Jesus says that there are uh, seeds that are scattered among a path. They pop up quickly, joyfully, uh, but then when persecution comes, they wither. And the goal of the Christian life is not just to start strong, not just to uh, respond briefly to the gospel, but to stay strong in our walk as Christians. Uh, for me, the start of a road trip is more exciting than the 8 to 12 hours in when I'm trying to stay awake and I'm trying to uh, kind of bare knuckle it. And oftentimes the Christian life can seem like that. I'm just trying to put one foot in front of another. I'm just trying to live by faith and hold on to hope when everything seems so dark and dreary. And perseverance, we'll see, is uh, brought on by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's progress that is uh, worked in us by God, and our hope is ultimately God's promises. That's the very end of our section. It's inheriting God's promises, God's word spoken to us, God's action for us. It's what He does, and He preserves us even as He calls us to perseverance. Uh, too much introspection in the Christian life is unhealthy, but it's good for us at different times in our life to ask, am I growing? Am I enamored with Jesus? That word means, am I taken and do I delight in Christ as my Savior? Do I glory in the cross for me and the resurrection hope that is promised to me? Or am I just kind of drifting along as a Christian? And there's a very clear goal of this whole section. The author tells us as we come to the, the closing of it, Verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the end. And so that's the goal of this passage, that each one of us would have full assurance of hope until the end, that no brother or sister would be left behind on this great race that we are on toward the finish line of entering into our eternal Rest. And we're going to see that the author intends to do that by three different sections in our passage. The first is a calling to maturity, a calling toward maturity. We're going to see that first. And then second, a challenge to urgently avoid apostasy, a challenge to urgently avoid apostasy. And then third, a comfort with certain hope of inheriting the promise. He comforts us, telling us it's absolutely certain that we will inherit the promise as we're looking to Christ. Well, let's look first at this calling to maturity, the, the calling to maturity that will help us to finish strong. Well, as I said, verses 9 and 10 are something relatively simple that the author of Hebrews says about Jesus. It says that because he was tempted in many different ways, because he learned obedience through what he suffered, he was made perfect or he was complete as the source of eternal salvation. It's a relatively simple thing that he's teaching about Christ. He also says after the order of Melchizedek, but he's saying to them now, before he goes into explaining Melchizedek, that he needs to challenge them to grow in maturity. They've been around the gospel, they've been taught the gospel, but he wants them to go deeper and to grow in their maturity. So he calls them first not to be lazy listeners, 
not to be sluggish, he says. We have much to say. It's hard to explain because you've become dull or you've been, become sluggish in your hearing. This is one of the main themes of this section. You can tell that because he closes in verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish. Same term in the original language. Don't be lazy in the way that you listen. Uh, Michael Kruger writes about this. Have you ever found yourself hearing the word of God in a sermon, but feeling numb and zoned out and a little bit lazy? And that's what the writer is talking about. Uh, It's our task as preachers to make God's word as glorious and as beautiful and as scintillating as it is in reality. My dad would often tell me, uh, one of his professors at Westminster, Philadelphia, told him it is a sin to bore the people of God. So it's our task to make God's word as delightful and beautiful as it is. But then it's all of our tasks as hearers not to be sluggish in the way that we receive it, to be expectant to pray for God to work as we hear God's word. And not just in sermons preached, but every time we open up the word, do we have a extreme expectancy that God himself is speaking in this book, that you have access to the very word of God addressing your heart. He says, don't be sluggish in your listening. But second, he says, they've been forgetful. They've uh, had to had things repeated to them over and over again. Verse 12, though by this time you should be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. If you raise a toddler and you're always repeating basic things to them, don't touch that, don't grab that, don't go into the street. Don't uh, do things that are dangerous. Don't jump out that window. It's a constant, constant thing that you're doing as parents. And that's kind of expected, right, of a toddler. It would be strange if the first time they heard something, they took it to heart. Uh, But if you were doing the same thing to a college student, maybe, or an adult in their 30s or 40s or 50s, don't run in the street. Don't do that. Don't touch that. Don't eat that. You would know there was something wrong with the person in terms of what they had heard in the instruction. They never grew up out of that toddler phase of having to hear the same basic instructions over and over and over again. And the, the author of Hebrews is concerned that his hearers are hearing the same thing and the same thing and the same thing, and it's not gripping their hearts for some reason. They're becoming forgetful. Notice the very, very high calling that every Christian has in terms of being able to teach God's word. It's amazing that he says you could be teachers by now. All of us are are, uh, enabled by Scripture and by the Spirit to learn God's word and then to share it with others. A couple passages that demonstrate this. Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom. Or Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. So moms, when you open up God's word with your kids throughout the day and you read it to them and explain it to them, you can teach God's word to them. And dads, as you do the same, you open up scripture with your families, you have the privilege of being a teacher of God's word. Not just those who are always consuming, taking in, taking in, taking in, but those who then 
grow in sharing God's word with others, being able to be teachers as well. Not always being forgetful about what we hear, but moving toward practicing God's word. But third, he's concerned with them that they are unfamiliar or unskilled in the word of righteousness. He says this is living on milk. Verse 12, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. And I think this is a, a danger to be misunderstood in our context in West Michigan. There may be more good teaching here in the Grand Rapids area, more books published, more wonderful sermons preached uh, than per capita, let's say, than maybe almost anywhere else in the world. And that is a remarkably good thing. So Addie just started Girls of Grace. I got to do a little bit of the study with her in the book of Esther. And I was thinking, this is such a good thing that our church does things like this, that we get into God's word, that we study it carefully, we read it, and we're trying to apply it to our lives. But you can be so just inundated in all these resources, morning and evening worship and Sunday school classes and going to high school theology. You can be around God's word all the time and yet not be skilled, he says, in the word of righteousness. What he means by that is it's not gripping your life. So you don't need to kind of memorize Bible trivia. It's not just information that you need to kind of master. Is it taking hold? Is it rooting you? When you are exasperated and anxious and terrified of not knowing where your life is going next, is this what you open and say, Lord, please carry me. I can't do one more day without you. To be skilled in the word of righteousness is to cause God's word to be your anchor. And his, his reason he's concerned about this is the final concern he has for them, that they're undiscerning in right and wrong. Solid food, verse 14, is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Those who handle money, it has been said, are always being trained in knowing what is true so that when they come across something that's counterfeit, they'll be able to compare it and say, this is not right, this is not accurate. And that discernment is almost intuitive as you take in God's word, as it's actually applied into your life and you're praying by the spirit that will transform you, you immediately have a radar to distinguish, he says, between good and Evil. And so we need to be praying as a church and as Christians uh, that we would be maturing in the faith, that we would not be forgetful, we'd be able to teach others, that we would be skilled in the word and desiring to master the word, not just for its information, but for its transforming power, and that that would enable us to be able to have a radar for discerning good and evil, that that would be uh, second nature to us. But second, then, he challenges this congregation to urgently avoid apostasy. I'm going to pass over somewhat quickly verses 1 to 3. Uh, chapter 6, verses 1 to 3 says that we should leave elementary doctrine. I'll just say about this, uh, commentators are not completely certain what this means if you read about verses 1 to 3 of chapter 6. Calvin will tell you these elementary doctrines are kind of a new membership class uh, they seem to be elements of the Apostles' Creed, potentially. And so he's saying, don't be stuck in a new membership class your whole life. 
what he's certainly not saying about these foundational truths is that we would ever set aside faith uh, from dead works, or I'm sorry, repentance from dead works or faith. Uh, these basic things are foundational to our whole lives as Christians. Uh, they're never training wheels that we take off at some point, but he's saying build the house up from these foundational realities. Don't be content with simple teaching, but build up the whole breadth of God's word on top of these foundational truths, and we will grow in spiritual maturity through that. But then he's concerned for them uh, because some, he, he sees, have left Christ's church. Some have left the visible church, and we, we uh, step into verses 4 through 8. It says, some were enlightened. They tasted the heavenly gift they shared the Holy Spirit and the powers of the age to come. They tasted of the goodness of the Word of God, and then they fell away. What's difficult about this passage is we don't know exactly what the nature of the falling away is. Uh, it doesn't say what, what, uh, what kind of apostasy was there. It's very, very likely that they had left uh, the, the church that, that is being written to here. Uh, they'd walked away from the visible church of God. But apostasy is always disorienting. It's always very, very hard to see someone who's walked with us, who's believed, professed the same things, who's claimed that they believed everything that we believe, and then to see them step away from Christ's church. Um, you may ask yourself, does this passage teach that there's some kind of sin that will make it so that you can never repent and turn? Uh, my oldest brother, his, birth, his birthday is actually today, oldest brother uh, was trained as a Christian his whole life, was sent off to college, and sometime in college said, I don't believe any of this. I'm, I'm stepping away from the gospel. It's all uh, false. And so the question would be, would someone like that be able to come back? And I think we should always pray for and desire the repentance and the return of every apostate. So what is the author of Hebrews saying? Well, he's saying there's no hope beyond Christ. Those who spurn the cross, those who hold up the Son of God to contempt, if they say there's no hope in this gospel, there's no future salvation coming after Jesus. You know, the theme of the book of Hebrews is that Christ is the superior one, the one who's fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophets. He's greater than Moses. Moses was a servant in God's house, Jesus is the son in God's house. He's greater than Aaron and the priesthood of Aaron. We're going to dig into the Melchizedekian priesthood of Christ. Jesus is greater than Joshua. He's the one that finally brought them rest. I've been uh, learning a little bit these last couple weeks about Islam. And Islam actually teaches that there is another prophet after Christ. Jesus was just one in a succession of prophets. And finally, Muhammad has come. And if you're going to really believe what God says, you should read all of the Old Testament and the New Testament in light of the Quran. And this is very, very serious to believe something like this, to believe that there's some revelation or some Savior coming after Jesus. And if you're anchored and your hope is that Christ is not a true Savior, there is no hope for restoration there. So 2 Peter 2 says, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment 
delivered to them. And so the simple exhortation from this section is don't dabble in apostasy. Uh, Don't dip your toes thinking, well, I can come back at some point later in my life or I can repent at the end of my life if I need to. Uh, Take apostasy seriously and know that there's only hope and confidence and peace in Jesus. That is the only certain anchor for our soul. And so he's called us to maturity. He's challenged us to take apostasy, to urgently avoid apostasy. But now third, he comforts us with the certain hope of inheriting the promises of God. It's so beautiful how he pauses now and he says to those who are receiving letter, verse 9, though we speak in this way, though we're urgently calling people not to dabble with apostasy, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. It's almost as as soon as he's uh, uttered this challenge not to dabble with apostasy, he wants to also comfort He wants to also say, I know people who struggle with assurance of salvation. I know people who are wondering if maybe they are apostatizing. And as you anchor yourself to Jesus, as your faith is rooted in him, he wants us to know, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And he goes into a set of things that God is just in seeing in us, the work and love that you've shown for his name and the serving of the saints as you still do. And so God sees you, moms and dads, when you're waking up in the middle of night and caring for children and the youngest saints of the church are being day after day cared for by tired parents. God sees you, uh, people who go to work day after day after day discouraged and wondering if it all matters. The Lord sees your love for him and the work that you have done. God sees you spouses who are hanging by a thread to your marriage vows and you're saying, Lord, the first part of this was easy, but now it's getting hard. The Lord sees your work and your love for him and your service to all the saints. And ultimately, he points us then as we close this section to our hope. Verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He points to faith, he points to hope, he points to patience. And all three of these virtues are about things that we don't see. The book of Romans chapter 8 says, If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And this is what the Christian life is all about, rooted in unseen realities. You day by day, serving, serving, loving, pursuing your shepherd who's done everything for you. And God's saying, as you wait in me, as you're patiently pursuing this walk as a Christian, as you're anchored to me, you will not ever be dismayed in trusting in Jesus. And I was thinking to myself, I think it's very easy because of the warning of apostasy, those who were enlightened, that likely refers to those who heard the gospel 
early on in their life and then turned away. Those who tasted the heavenly gift, they uh, professed their faith and came to the Lord's Supper. It seems like visibly, at least outwardly, like they shared in the Holy Spirit. Uh, They even tasted of the goodness, at least in terms of being under the Word of God. It's easy to say, well, all that stuff didn't work for them, so maybe we should look somewhere else. Those ordinary means of grace didn't seem to be powerful and effectual. And God would never say that about his word. He would never say that about the goodness of his word, the the heavenly nature of this gift. Why? Well, it's because all of these testify to a person. All of these realities, which some people participated in outwardly and then left, testify to a person. What is this enlightening? Well, Jesus said about himself that he was the light shining in the darkness and that those who had been walking and stumbling in darkness, on them a light had shone. And so when the gospel is preached and the light shines, it's the very light of Christ shining over us as a congregation. When those who starved in the wilderness in the Old Testament were fed on the manna from heaven, Jesus can say, I am true bread. My flesh is true food. Jesus is the bread from heaven that came down. Jesus is the word of God who became flesh for us to see him as an all-sufficient Savior is to taste the very goodness of the Father. So all these outward things point to the promise of a person. And faith and hope and patience are anchored in Jesus. We're going to see in the next section that those who fled to a trustworthy refuge are rescued. And that's what hope is all about. And so I would just say to you, dear Christian, this evening, if you are wondering, is it all real is the, the, the reason that I am hoping in, the, the, the thing that I am pursuing, the person that I'm pursuing, will he actually preserve me all the way to the end? Our rooted confidence, as Raymond Brown says, is we depend for our salvation not on our lives for God, but his love for us. Not on our commitment to him, but his pledge to us. Not on our hold on him, but his grasp of us. That's what it means that you're inheriting a promise, because a promise is all about God who spoke. It's all about God who said, I will write my name on this covenant in blood. I will certify to you as you anchor yourself to Jesus. There is no question that he will bring you all the way home. And so we'll sing about the firm foundation, how firm a foundation you saints of the Lord is laid for your faith In his excellent word, what more can he say than to you he has said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Your perseverance, your inheriting of the promise is secured by the Son of God being cut by nails piercing him to a tree, being pierced into his side, and by the very Son of God crying out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's to assure you this evening that as you look at the goodness of the God who loved you and gave his son on a cross for you, 
you will never be put to shame, that your anchor is going to hold and that the promises that God has made to you will last. He will hold you fast. He will keep you strong all the way to the end. And he does call us to maturity. He does call us to take apostasy seriously. And ultimately, though, the, the one that we are pursuing, the one that we are fixing our eyes on is Christ himself and the way that he has laid down his life for sinners like us. Let's give thanks for the gospel. Our Father, we pray that you would give us a hunger and a thirst for Christ, Lord, that we would pursue spiritual disciplines and practices this year, Lord, that we would uh, be a people that hungers and thirsts uh, for righteousness found in the Bible and applied by the Holy Spirit. And Lord, behind all of those things, I pray that, that each of us, Lord, would gain the full assurance of knowing that you stand behind all those things, that you love us as a father, that you fed us in the wilderness, and that you will bring us all the way home. Lord, I pray for every single young woman and young man, Lord, every uh, middle-aged and older Christian tonight, Lord, that is anchoring their faith in you. I ask that hope and patience would be worked in us such that, Lord, we would finish strong all the way to the very last breath that we have in this life. Lord, we pray that as we come to your table, you would seal these realities to us by your sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.